Hey guys, welcome back. Today we're going to discuss whether anxiety is contagious. Near and near. Newt. So we got a question here from a listener. Thank you guys for these. Animus at animusempire.com. If you have a question or reach out on Twitter, DM me. As they say, this listener has a question about whether you can catch somebody's anxiety. He was, or when he was in college, he had a roommate. And this roommate showed signs of anxiety, though this listener didn't know they were signs of anxiety at the time. So he would always, the roommate would always walk around, you know, covered in a blanket, wrapped in a blanket, very much like those uh, storm shirts they have for dogs, you know, the tight-fitting storm shirts that help a dog feel more secure. The roommate would always have the television on, he would sleep on the couch. Now, this listener did not recognize these as signs of anxiety at the time. But this is when the but this is when the listener became more and more anxious. So he's wondering, even though he wasn't conscious of this anxiety, did he catch his roommate's anxiety? Oh, and, and this leads, of course, into the question of: Is it possible to catch somebody's anxiety? My answer to this is yes. We can definitely catch people's anxiety, and and if we're going to carry the analogy over, you know, the pathogen analogy for anxiety, you can catch somebody's anxiety. You can also immunize yourself from anxiety as well. So let's say a little bit more about this and how it works. So what you're talking about here is the social contagion theory of anxiety. So you don't have to be exposed to the uh, anxious, to, to the threat that causes anxiety to feel anxious yourself. You can catch it from somebody else. I mean, I think a common example of this, let's say your spouse is, uh, or no, you're, so you're sitting in your home, Everything seems all right. You know, the kid's okay, the dog's okay, the, the house doesn't seem like it's on fire, and your spouse comes in and she has this worried look on her face. And now you are going to be worried because she has a worried look. I mean, it depends how often she comes in with a worried look. I mean, if it's all the time, maybe not, you're going to tune in out. But let's say she comes in and worried look, you're going to feel worried even though you are not exposed at all to the threat that caused her worry. And it's a very subtle cues that we pick up on, and that's what makes it unconscious. Because, you know, if your eyebrow, you know, for example, if your eyebrow's at 35 degrees, then it's worry. And now you get worried if, if her eyebrow's at 37 and a half degrees. Okay, that's ex excitement and you're not worried. Now, you're, you're not picking up you're, or, or you're, you can't explicate exactly what's going on. We have the nerdy researchers that do this. And this is cross-cultural, you know, how, uh, you know, the archetypal expression of certain emotions is cross-cultural. So you're not picking up on it, right? You're not getting a protractor out and measuring her, her eyebrow angle. You, you can just sense it. And that's what makes it unconscious. Um, you know, uh, another example of this, yeah, I think it's pretty similar is let's say you're at a dinner party and you're talking to some guy and you just feel skeezed out by him, like you feel creeped out. And you don't know exactly why at the time during the, during the party, but afterwards you can go back and become more conscious of those cues that were unconscious. Oh yeah, he was doing that or that. He kept, you know, uh, fiddling with, with his drink or something. And, and you know, that was kind of weird. It felt like he just wanted to get out of there. Like he was on the verge of a panic attack, something to, to that effect. Um, so we're not conscious of these things at the time. I mean, we kind of are, right? Consciousness, unconsciousness, regarding our perception, there's a gray area there. Some stuff, they're kind of conscious of it. it's just outside the realm of our consciousness so we are aware of it to some degree and this also you know works on an intellectual level too 
This is something Jung talks about, cryptonesia. So Nietzsche was accused of plagiarizing a story that came out in the 1830s or something. And parts of the story are word for word, looks like a plagiarization. But Jung's point is, no, Nietzsche didn't plagiarize the story. This is a story that he read or was exposed to when he was young, which was confirmed by Nietzsche's sister that, that Nietzsche did read the story when he was young. And he forgot about it. And then later on in his adulthood, he spit back the story word for word in some parts. Now it wasn't all word for word, but you can tell that Nietzsche put his own spin on it. You could tell it was Nietzsche's, even though parts of the story was word for word. And this is called Kryptonesia. I think it was also behind, uh, you know, you may not remember, but there's this uh, comedian back in the aughts. His name was Dane Cook, and he was accused of stealing jokes from Louis C.K. And there's actually a really good scene in uh, Louis C.K.'s joke, uh, show, Louis, where they kind of hash it out. And what Louis C.K. says is, you know, look, Dane, I know you didn't steal my joke on purpose. Like, I know you're not that dumb. I know you're not that bad of a guy. But what probably happened is, is you were in the back room when I was out doing a set and you heard it. Right, you heard it just maybe outside of the range of your conscious perception at the time. You went home and you had this idea for this funny joke. You know, you just had this idea all of a sudden, and you didn't care that it could have possibly come from somebody. And if you know something about comedians, something they talk about a lot is, "Hey, I have this funny joke. Does this come from anywhere? Did I pick this up on you know some premium blend, you know, Comedy Central special I saw in 1998?" You know, you're constantly asking yourself that, and. Dane Cook was too obsessed with his own success at the time to really care. He's like, I don't care. I have this good joke, and it's going to be funny. He's not going to... He didn't have, the, you know, the uh, the uh, ability to just go back and... The, the calmness, you know, to go back and say, well, wait, where did this come from? He, he did lack that reflective capacity. So it works on a intellectual level as well you know we catch thoughts this works on a biological level as well like you know I was on uh, the BART during Halloween BART's the Bay Area Rapid Transit it's it's the subway system here in the Bay Area and I was on a crowded train it was Halloween and the girl not next to me but the girl next to the girl next to me she puked <laughs> it was it was really gross it smelled terrible and of course what happens when somebody in your proximity pukes is you start to feel nauseated you start to feel like you really need to puke because well consciously you go oh well it's gross and her puking makes you want to puke well no there are other factors going on we can deduce and that is on some evolutionary level if some girl in my proximity is puking we're in the same tribe so we're in the same tribe we ate the same food if she's puking she ate something gross therefore I probably ate something gross as well the same thing and I need to get ready to puke as well. It's a really helpful mechanism to have in a certain situation. You know, if you're at a, you know, that disgust, puke, nauseated mechanism, you know, if you're at a seafood buffet in Reno, and you know, you do the thing where as you're eating the oyster, like as soon as the, the tip of the oyster touches your tongue, you know, you know something's wrong with it, but you eat it anyways because you're so cheap. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm gonna need that nauseated puke reflex then. So thank you for existing. But in this moment, I'm aware of what's going on, and I'm able to go, okay, you don't need to puke. You just, uh, this very, you know, normal, healthy mechanism is coming up for you. And I think that's a good indication of, of how to immunize yourself from catching certain emotions or thoughts from people. 
is awareness. You know, another great example of how awareness helps immunize ourselves from emotions is with children. So a study that I really like to cite, I mean, it's probably been, you know, debunked 35 times by now, but it's a good study and it shows that uh, moms who are afraid of dogs, I think the original study was with mice or rats, but moms who are afraid of dogs, the chance that their, ch- that their child is going to be afraid of a dog is nearly 100%. Now, it's not 100%, but nearly 100%. And the reason is because when a dog enters the room, the mom shows very subtle signs of anxiety. And so the child picks up on this and goes, well, if mom's afraid of it, then I better be afraid of it as well. And it's subtle because you know the best part of the study is okay so the mom learns this she knows it's an irrational fear she knows it's irrational to be afraid of dogs so she goes okay i don't want my child to be afraid of dogs so what i'll do is i'm going to pretend like i'm not afraid next time i see a dog and of course it doesn't work now clearly right the child is not picking up consciously on these uh, signs of anxiety given off by the mom but it is influencing the child and this is exactly what we need to do to immunize ourselves from anxiety or any other emotion from somebody else is we need to be aware of this emotion in ourselves is that emotion differentiated in us Um, are we aware of it are we do we have a solid identity right i'm just saying the same thing in a different way are we conscious of this part of our unconscious or have we been conscious of this part of our unconscious before you know i i, I kind of felt like puking when that girl uh, next to me on the subway when she puked i kind of felt like puking i mean i didn't because again i knew what was going on but other situations you, you know i just don't have as much experience with my puke disgusted nauseated reflex to puke myself but other situations where i am I do have more awareness, like with my anxiety. I've obviously worked on my anxiety way more than I've worked on my disgust reflex. But if somebody has a panic attack, I was on this, uh, I was on a flight, the lady next to me started to have a panic attack and I actually became calmer. Not because I'm some superhero, but because I've been in that situation before. I mean, at that time in my life, I was working in a lot of group therapy and people will just start to have panic attacks in group therapy. Um, there's some other situation like that where, but, but in general, because I've managed my anxiety pretty well, obviously there's still more to do, but because I've you know really become literate with my anxiety, when somebody starts to panic, I actually become calmer because I know what they're feeling. I know what they're going through. This is not new to me, right? I have acclimated myself to the stress of that emotion, whether it's their emotion or whether it's my emotion, I've acclimated myself to the stress of that. This is what goes on, or or this explains the process behind separation from our parents. You know, the first stage of adult development that we talk about, can you separate emotionally from our parents? This is the, or one of the mechanisms behind it. Let's say you're 15 and and, you know, you, you, you start to resent your mom because you know she's anxious, your mom's anxious. You don't really know your mom's anxious. You, you're not gonna put it in those words when you're 15. You're just, oh, mom's annoying, and I don't like being around her, and I'm frustrated by my mom, and I resent her, and her anxiety makes her do you know, strange things around people who makes company, and you know it's bad for my reputation. That's all I care about when I'm 15. But later you grow up and you realize, oh, my mom's an anxious person. And I was having that reaction to my mom because I was not aware of my own anxiety at the time. 
but whether I've gone to therapy or just lived life, uh, you know, through developing more honest relations with honest relationships with other people, I have become more aware of my anxiety. So now when I hang out with my mom, she's not less, yeah, she is not less anxious as she, uh, than she was when I was 15. Probably she's more anxious because she's getting old and she's not managing the anxiety. So maybe it's just getting worse and worse. She is not less anxious, but I am more regulated in my anxiety. So I'm able to separate it out. I am able to not let her anxiety affect me. I have a boundary for my mom and her anxiety. So she still has her anxiety, yet I am ever more calm around her. I am separated because I have managed that which caused her to be anxious. And that's even more relevant in, in the family context because what's causing her to be anxious may be a family issue that you, of course, in turn need to deal with. So, yeah. Do you have awareness of your anxiety is... Uh, is the main issue and of course that's something that we can help you with here at Animus something that we do I mean just to peel back the curtain a little bit it's this isn't um, the entirety of emotional regulation but I think it's a really important step and maybe an important first step for some people and that is simply can you name an emotion can you name what you are feeling at the moment? Good, bad, okay, fine are not feelings. And people I've noticed have a lot of resistance to this and are like, oh, well, it doesn't matter. Oh, I'm too tired. Oh, I don't feel like talking about it. That is all resistance. That's fear. I know it doesn't seem like fear, but that is fear. That is a way for you to defend against emotions because emotions are painful. They are a neurological load, especially unconscious emotions. They're a neurological load that you're not used to. That's simply pain. And you're trying to distract yourself. You're trying to defend yourself against feeling pain. Totally normal, right? And it's something that we can totally work through. But first, we got to start naming emotions. And I really recommend that people do this with their spouse, wife, girlfriend, significant other, you know, boyfriend, husband, whatever once a day, about at least five times a week. Just name one emotion with them. Let them name an emotion to you. Relate with each other's emotions. It doesn't, it feels like pretty much nothing in the moment and that's why it works because it's something that you are able to do. But with each iteration in doing this, you get more and more comfortable feeling emotions. And then when you have a roommate or you're around anybody who's really anxious, you are able to pick up on it. Not only the external cues, not only the external cues of anxiety, but how you feel the anxiety. But of course, awareness of both, you know, awareness of your internal anxiety, your internal state is a reflection of how, how where you will be of external cues and, and vice versa. So, you know, this is something that we can help you with here. We have a unique way of doing therapy. Emotions have a certain structure. Because they have a certain structure, we talk about them, we regulate them in a certain way. This creates a structure for therapy. So we can help you through a process so you can do what you want to do and stop doing things you don't want to do. Reach out. We do free consultations. AnimusEmpire.com slash schedule. Thank you guys for listening. And remember, while you can definitely catch anxiety, while you can catch somebody else's anxiety, this may simply be another opportunity to become more aware of yourself.